All right, so uh, this is our Stories of the Season panel, like I said. Um, I'll let both of you introduce yourselves like I did with the first one. Um, your name, you write for The Athletic. What do you do? Just a little introduction. Well, yeah, I'm Joshua Cloak. I write for The Athletic. I take direction from him. Good or bad, it's all, it's all him. We both do, don't we? You were his student. Yes, Sean taught me uh, everything I know about sports reporting. So if this uh, panel is horrible, it's his fault. And if it's great, <laughs> it's his fault. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got, I got nothing to go on that. I apologize for both of you. Um, and there's some more out in the audience. I think you all passed, too. So congratulations to you guys. Congratulations for passing Ryerson Journalism and Sports, which is as easy a course as it sounds. Um, <laughs> is anybody here short of college credit? Anybody? Uh, JRN512. Um, Haley passed it, so I mean... And like, if it's I so it. easy, why did you give me such a bad grade? <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, everyone. That's the end of this the panel. ACDC? No more ACDC. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, I am Sean Fitzgerald. Um, I am managing editor, I guess, of The Athletic, at least I was before I got up on stage. James Myrtle will have something to say about that when I get off stage, I'm sure. This is just water. Um, I don't write about prospects. I am aware of prospects. I don't write about analytics. I, again, went to Ryerson, so math. Um, <laughs> I'm probably going to end up spending a lot of time talking about feelings and, like, Mike Babcock's accent, so if you have to pee or get, like, another beer, this is a really good panel to do it. Or bring us a Thank beer you. or, you know. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So um, I'll just start off with, you know, Sean, you just touched on one of them. Uh, you wrote, a, you know, about his Mike Babcock's accent. And I think uh, that's what's so great about The Athletic uh, is that it's really interesting stories. I would never read that in a normal newspaper. Um, I think you especially have, like, a really good knack for finding these quirky stories that... Uh, it probably just throws people off when you ask them questions about it. Um, so what are some of the most memorable stories that you did this season? And if you wouldn't mind sharing like a little bit about it. Who does, who can do a Mike Babcock? Who's, who's real, like when you, when you later in the panel, when, you know, you have some more beers in you, who's really confident doing their best Mike Babcock? Drager's good. Drager's got a good Babcock. What? Oh. Oh, we have beef. We have beef. What's, what's terrible about, where is it? Where are we? At the back there? <laughs> I don't know. It makes me cringe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Now, now I Dreger. I, I interviewed Darren Dreger for this, and um, he did. He did it over the phone, and I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I'm asthmatic, and I, I nearly had an attack. It was so good, <laughs> talking about. Um, so yeah, I'll just back up a little bit, rather than ramble for a full hour like fucking Dom and Wheeler. Um, <laughs> that's a soundproof booth back there. Is it? No, they can hear you. That's awkward. Um, so Mike Babcock, again, I, like, I've been around the Leafs or Leafs adjacent since about 2000. Um, and yeah, I'm not smart enough to be able to break down what the forechecking scheme should be. Um, I, I do appreciate and I read Dello and Myrtle and everybody a ton, but that's not my bailiwick. So mine is, I go in there and I like sports when they make you feel weird things. Like, you know, the, the, the highs of winning, the, the crushing. I'm a Notre Dame fan, so the crushing lows of defeat. Um, but the one thing was this year, I went in, and it was just a press conference. They were winning. It was an off-day skate, I think, at the ACC. 
And Babcock started talking, just the podium. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, the fuck is up with that? <laughs> like, it, it doesn't, like, I, I've been to Saskatoon. Like, I've, I've been to Manitoba. I've never seen any, I've never heard anybody who talked anywhere like Mike Babcock speaks. Like, it's not a prairie lilt. He doesn't sound, like, Haley Wickenheiser doesn't, like, she was on the ice. She's not like, well, we got to get bucks in deep and uh, <laughs> just want to get a big brown bear and uh, go hunting big brown bears. It's, um, it's the, one, the one word that does it for me. As we would all say, well, for him, it's full-on sheep's wool. 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 And that's how he starts every answer. Wool. Wool. Well, so wool. I was listening to it, and, and I, I'm like, well, where did that come from? And you can ask Mike Babcock. And the thing is, is like, when you're in a scrum with Mike Babcock, like, this is basically the size of the media scrum around Mike Babcock on a Tuesday in fucking February. Like, more people cover the Toronto Maple Leafs than cover Kathleen Wynne, Doug Ford, and Andrea Horvath combined. And that's just to talk about Nazem Kadri's, like, you know, ingrown toenail that week. So it's really intimidating, especially if you have a tendency to ask really stupid fucking questions like I do. So I'm like, well, how do you approach this story? So, like any sports reporter, as we're all trained as sports reporters, I started calling linguists from, from across the country. And God bless them, a lot of the linguists took my phone call. I mean, it took texts and then emails and then please, um, but they answered them. And the interesting thing I found out was that, I mean, when you dig into it, Mike Babcock says he's from Saskatoon. Saskatoon happily claims Mike Babcock. But he was, he was born in like Northern Ontario and his dad was a mining engineer. And then they moved to a town called Tungsten. And I Googled it and like Wikipedia has like six lines on it. And the bottom line is like, why the fuck are you Googling this? Um, it, was this it was this town that was founded for, as a mine, and there were 400 people who lived there at its peak, and they were drawn over from all across Canada. And that's sort of where he spent, like, say, three to six. And then they moved to a place called Leaf Rapids in Manitoba, which is about as far north in Manitoba as you ever want to go. For some people, that's Winnipeg. For some people, that's the 49th parallel. But, like, it's, it's as far into Manitoba as you want to go. And it was created by the government, again, as a mining town. And again, it pulled people from all over the province. So these people were speaking not just one accent. It was a sort of a melange, like a, uh, a soup of accents. And through all of this, he developed this really, really unique way of speaking, these mannerisms that were sort of this collaboration of Northern Ontario, like Letterkenny sort of stuff, right? And then like you had like corner gas in the middle. And then I'm not, like, I don't, I'm not aware of you know, what Tungsten was on TV then. They didn't have TV. But anyway. So you have all of this stuff. So that explains the base, that you, you generally pick up your accent by the time you're 12. But he's, like, he went to university in Montreal, and then he like, played in England, and then he lived in California, and then Michigan. Like, those are all, when you think about it, really unique pockets in people and manners of speaking, whether it be the surfer in California, or fucking Ted Nugent in Michigan, or you know, whoever you want, Harry Potter in London. And he didn't pick up any of it. And the way that the linguist, the best way the linguist could find out, which I thought was really interesting, and I'm boring you to death with this, but um, was that because, like most people would go and you'd pick up, like think Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Like Gwyneth Paltrow goes to the UK, she comes back, she has an accent, she's here for a while, she, I would do the same thing. Like I can be interviewing somebody from Alabama and, or, or, or even Tennessee or wherever, and by the end of the conversation, it's just me, I pick up a twang, and I'm listening to it on the tape when I'm transcribing. I'm like, you sound like an idiot. But Mike Babcock never did. And the best that they could figure, and this was Jack Chambers, who's a, a pretty well-known linguist at U of T. This was at the University of Manitoba that was hosting 
uh, uh, sort of a seminar on Canadian vowel usage, which I'm surprised you're all here and not there because I think it's this week. Um, <laughs> but like what it takes to maintain your accent through that many moves is a supreme sense of self-confidence in who you are. And that really sort of bore true because like if you think about Mike Babcock, like there's certain things he's not lacking and I, I think confidence is, is probably not one of them. He, he's very confident in who he is. So in a roundabout sort of way, calling around linguists and other people trying to figure out what happened to Mike Babcock's accent sort of revealed a little bit about Mike Babcock that I think we probably all knew in this room that he's a pretty confident dude and probably also kind of stubborn as Mr. Nina Under probably knows. Sean Fitzgerald, everyone. Give it up. Um, it's funny you bring that up. I, like, reading the story and, and being around Babcock a bit, I actually think, you know, you talked about all the different places he's lived, and I actually think he likes not being able to be pegged down. I think he likes that kind of sense of suspense that, because when reporters ask him a question, the second the reporter gets the first word of the question out, he gets that nod on, and he's got the answer before the question is finished. Well, it, it comes out right away, because he wants, you know, this is a coach that wants to be in control, and I think that that kind of, like you said, he's moving around, he's, he, we're not really sure where Babcock is from, and I, I think he likes that, I think he likes having that kind of sense that... I, I, I'm me, and you can't peg me down, and you don't know where I'm from, and I, I'm Mike Babcock. Well, I mean, he wears where he's from. That's, that's the only catch, is that, you know, he wears the Saskatoon thing, and it turns out he's from a whole bunch of different places. I, I'd, be, I'd be partially lying well, if... Saskatoon science, or Saskatchewan science. Like, that was brought up so many times, and, and you, you look at each other like, well, what does that mean? You know, I, 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 part of this also started because we, there was a, a discussion on Slack uh, some of us, I, I won't name uh, the, the cohorts in this, thought he was putting it on. Like he goes home and he speaks like everybody else in this room. It's like, hello, how was your day at school? My day was fine, thank you. Our power play needs work. Um, and then, you know, when he, when he gets to the rink, it's like, hello, how are you doing? Bucks in deep. Um, but it turns out like, like nobody, nobody could say otherwise. That Like Darren Dreger, uh, despite uh, our doubters, uh, <laughs> said that even back in the old W days, um, that they'd sit around a bar, um, whether it be the Memorial Cup or wherever it is, all these these hockey people gathered, and like Babcock would sit there at the table. There'd be six of them around the table, and you know Mike Babcock then would be, he's always got somewhere to go. Like you know Josh was talking about, like he, he's the bad clock, right? Like he's not there very long. Um, and the second that he would leave, um, the first one would would try his impression. And, and it was Dreger, and that's, you know, on the, the buses in the Great Plains of, of the western half of this country is where it was, where it was staged. But it, it, it's his real accent, and it, I think it says something really interesting about him. Yeah, and I, I read that story, too, and it's... Thank uh, you. I appreciate the subscription. <laughs> you were hounding me to subscribe. I had to. Uh, no, it's, it's really interesting, because those aren't stories that you typically would read uh, about the Leafs, especially uh, in seasons so... That's one story of the season. Um, you're kind of in, in, in deep with the TFC uh, beat right now, but you covered some Leafs this season. So what is a story that really stands out to you uh, that you got to work on? Well, I mean, since we're talking about Babcock, his season in England uh, where he was a bit of a, a player coach is fascinating because he goes over there 
to work on his teaching degree and, and get some practical teaching experience. That's why he was kind of, I guess, that's, that was his intentions. And, and then he goes over there and, and this, the, the, the BHL, the, the British Hockey League, is allowed to recruit three foreigners and, and, you know, him and these two guys from Quebec, that's part of it. And he discovers very early on that while he's there, like, he can boss this league. Like, I mean, he was a defenseman and he got a billion points in, 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 you know, in one season. So he goes to his coach and he's like, I got some suggestions on the drills here. And he, he discovers that, like, I don't really, I'm fine playing. I'm six inches taller than, you know, every player in this league. Um, I'd rather coach. I'd rather run drills. And the coach was kind of surprised. Well, okay, like, why not? You're this Canadian guy. Um, and what's kind of revealed through the story and what's revealed about Babcock is that while so many players go over to England, as a lot of people do when they go abroad to, to go teach, it's, it's your year abroad and you're getting paid, but you're, you're using this as kind of a paid holiday in a way. Babcock's at the back of the bus on every trip studying. Studying not to, you know, improve his, his you know, teaching skills. He was teaching, but he wants to become a coach you know, even from that point, and he's balancing, like, playing 45 minutes a night, and then when he comes off for those extra 15 minutes, he's trying to boss other players on the bench, um, and I think, like, we maybe, I don't want to say underestimate, but I think we forget what that obsession that drives him, or from what I understand, still really, really drives him, and that didn't, that's not something that came on once he, like, started with the Red Wings. I mean, this is something from very a very early age. He's like, I'm obsessed with getting better. And I also, you know, it's that story came out at the beginning of the season, but it's fascinating to think about it now because you're like, how is he going to try now to get better now that a lot of the people around him have changed? How is he going to try and get better? Because I think he came under fire at times last season for not adapting, for not you know, being in tune with the modern NHL, whatever that means. And so this is a, a guy that, again, he displayed in England, he's obsessed with the game. He's obsessed with learning. He's obsessed with trying to get the best out of his players. What does that mean right now? So that's kind of what I thought about it. It's, it's, it's interesting, though, because, again, like, I talked to the two other foreign players that were there with him, and they lived in this house with him, and, you know, they in not so many words, was we were getting shit-faced every night. And then and Babcock was, you know, upstairs taking out the three books in all of Britain on hockey, you know, from the library. And, 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 and he was just obsessed with it. Uh, and he got into coaching very soon afterwards. Um, I, I asked him, I, I, it's funny, I made the mistake of asking him. I knew I had to get his comment for the story. Uh, and I asked Jonas Siegel, you know, who's the best? I'm like, you know, how do you think I should kind of go about it? And he's like, ask him today. We were, at, we, were at, uh, we were in Etobicoke at the Leafs practice ring. He's like, ask him today. And I'm, they had just gotten blown out the night before. I was like, oh, no, I don't know, I don't know. And then I asked him uh, on a, at a morning skate. And, you know, like I said, you, when you ask Babcock a question within the first yeah. And it's coming, and then I, I asked him the question, and you get that, that brief kind of like, 
And, and, and that made me kind of go, what am I asking you? But uh, anyway, no, it, like, we, again, we underestimate, I think, just how obsessed he is. And from what I've heard, he's, he's at the rink, you know, four or five in the morning. And it, that, that didn't start recently. That's not something that, that started, you know, when he came to the Leafs. This is uh, something that started in a strange small town in England. What time are you at the rink? What? What time are you at the rink? Are you at the rink at 4 or 5 in the morning? Uh, I'm there before Myrtle. That's okay. all I'll say. All right. So that's, that's, that's a base level of obsession. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. Uh, just one thing while we're on the topic of uh, Babcock, uh, one story um, that came out this season towards the end of the year, uh, I think it was Nick Kiprios, he said uh, on uh, Hockey Night in Canada, one of the panels, he said Babcock lost Matthews. Um, and it seemed like there was quite a, a big media storm that came after that. Uh, a lot of fans were angry, just people, everyone had an opinion on that. Um, do either of you have an opinion on that statement or just... Uh, I think uh, Kiprios came out and said, you know, it's not a big deal. It happens when you have a player of that caliber and a coach of that caliber. Um, but everyone kind of blew it up. So what do you guys think about those comments? It's Toronto. Uh, I mean, it could have been Mike Babcock lost his phone number. And by the time it gets out, it's like he lost, he lost Austin Matthews. How, how do you lose Austin Matthews? He's a big fucking guy. Like, check Scottsdale, like, in the Yellow Pages or something. Um, like, it, it's not new. Um, I spent more time, like, I, I came to hockey after football. And in football, you want to talk about obsessive. Like, not, does anybody, this is a silly question. I'm going to get rotten fruit thrown at me or something. But does anybody watch the Argos? You can, you can raise your hand. We're all friends here. Oh, there we go. Anti Babcock and two more. Excuse me. Dragger, excuse me. Um, so you want to talk about obsessive. The Toronto Argonauts spent time in training camp, and the CFL training camp is like 24 minutes long because it's constraints, practicing how to stand for the national anthem. Like grown men and trainers and women, they, they practice how to stand for the national anthem. It's not like, okay, your, your hand must be here and et cetera. It's like, no, you stand on that yard line. You were one half foot away there and so on and so on. And then so the players get the front hash and then all of the support staff are right behind them, like perfectly aligned, like mathematically perfect. That's obsessive. Like, so football coaches and their players historically don't get along. Um, not, not that they need to, because, I mean, in football, the salaries aren't guaranteed. You can cut anybody for looking at you sideways. Um, so I don't think it's a huge deal, even if there was tension, even if they didn't get along all the time. Because, I mean, that great, I guess it's a cliche now, but the Steve Shutt line about Scotty Bowman was that, you know, the Montreal Canadiens hated him 364 days of the year, and on the 365th was when they picked up their Stanley Cup rings. But do you believe that... Um, I just said my answer, Josh. <sighs> do, you, do you believe it's on... Or do you think it's on coaches now, though, to... Um, and, and I'll preface this by saying... Fitzy and I were talking about uh, parenthood backstage. Uh, but, like, do you think it's on coaches to get more in tune with, uh, you know, the way... I hate using this word. The, the way millennials think. Like, the, the, the idea that players now need more personal attention that they did in the past. Oh, for sure. By the way, I think millennials are, like, 35 now. So I, I are, hope are any, I'm a millennial. Are there any millennials left on the Leafs? Oh. Like, isn't Patrick Marlowe? I don't, are you, do you count as a millennial? I don't... There's, like, millennial and millennial X. Okay, right. so is it... 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know what you're saying and saying. But is it on? Is it on coaches to get in tune with the way? teenagers or young 20-year-olds think. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, they, they have to be adaptable. Um, I, I agree entirely. Like, you can't come in and coach, like, like punch Imlac and, you know, bag skate them at 8 o'clock in the morning after a loss. Like, you're going to lose the room. There's, there's certain things you can't do, but um, you, you do have to become more attuned to the generational shift, the best practices, um, no pun intended with the practice. But um, to say that, you know, you need to be liked and adored, I mean... These are all professional guys who have spent a lot of time, a lot of money um, getting to where they need to be just to get to the NHL draft. And once you're in the NHL, like if you're lacking in confidence in what you're doing, there's a good chance you're not going to stick. So those are, you know, in their own way, even though it's hockey and nobody likes to be the tall blade of grass, like they're all still fairly self-confident individuals. So to assume that, you know, all 30 guys that you're going to be carrying with you at any given practice are going to adore you, um, I, I don't even know if that's possible because they're all, I mean, hockey players are pretty homogenous, but, you know, they are kind of different. Like there's, there's some guys who have brown hair and there's some guys who have blonde hair. Um, but like they're different personalities. Some guys get pucks in deep. Some guys don't. Some guys, some guys don't. Some give 110%. No, everybody gives 110%. They have to. That was like one of my first lessons in uh, JRN 5-something. Five 5-1-2? Don't ask cliche questions. No, I, wasn't it the um, talk about? Tell me about this. No, I mean, that one's... Talk about this. Yeah, talk about. Yeah. Anybody, I mean, that was one of Dallas Eakin's big things. And Ben Scrivens, God bless him too, I think was one of the first ones. That when people, and you see them too, and, and I, I, I'm not even going to say I get it because I don't. Don't ever ask this, but... After a game, it's like, can you talk about the power play? It's a power play. What do you want? Like, ask a question. The problem is they can take that in any direction well, they that's, want. That's exactly it. It's like you're holding up your, your tape recorder saying, please give me content for 30 seconds, and I'm not going to ask a question, which is my literal only job. I, I, was, I don't know if anyone remembers. Uh, I think it was the ALCS or the ALDS when the Jays were good. A few years ago, back, I was back a, before the war. I was a, I was an intern at CBC at the time, and I was uh, the reporter had a different thing, and he was late. So they're like, "Okay, well, Haley, you just go and you ask Gibby a few questions." I'm like, "What? <laughs> okay." And it was a press conference, and Gibby was there, and then I think it was the um, the manager for Cleveland, and it was the press conference where the guy asked the stupidest question ever, and then that it was a viral video of the manager just being like, "I'm not going to answer that. That's so stupid." Does anyone remember seeing that? Because I was there and I did not ask that question. <laughs> I'm just gonna end it on that. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip you for real. What's the worst quest, or what's the most embarrassing moment you've had via asking a question? Like the, the, the not time... including anything that might happen up here tonight. No, no. Okay. The, the, the time when you asked the question and as soon as the person answering it started, you were like, ah. Fuck, I stepped in it. Yeah, no, it, it happens a lot. And like, more than, I mean, when you have it's a voice like this, when you have a voice like this, like, you don't like hearing it, especially when you're listening, transcribing it later. But yeah, I mean, there are times when you sort of get lost in a question because you're doing a story. It's, you know, February 12th, the Panthers are in town. You're doing a story like, I don't know what I'm really doing here. And you find yourself talking and you're just filling empty space, sort of like I am right now, and you get lost. And then all of a sudden, people just start. Start looking back, like, camera guy from Global TV is like, the hell are you doing? I only have 30 more seconds of tape left. Like, those are among the worst. But the worst I ever, ever, ever had was a one-on-one -on -one interview with uh, Alexander McGilney, 
who is a, a wonderful player, obviously, although he, certainly the hip injury slowed him down when he got up here, um, but also like really underrated in terms of being just really observant, smart, and a real smart ass, like really in a good, funny way. And I was doing a piece, a freelance piece, uh, I think for maybe even the Leafs program. And I was out late the previous night because I was young then, young once, not anymore. And I might even have been out somewhere in Queen West, I'm sure, drinking water like I am tonight. And so I had this interview with McGillney the next morning. And it was just, I was in a fog, and I couldn't quite think of a question to get it going. And, and he's there because it's for the Leafs magazine, and, and he doesn't want to be there. It's a Saturday. And I asked him, so, you know, Alex, do you, do you like playing in the playoffs? And he's like... That's bad. That's a really good question. And it sounded better in my head, like... You know, what do you like most about playing in the playoffs? Or, you know, what, what's the feeling that changes inside you, the intensity? But it came out as sort of this really weird-looking reporter asking him a question about whether or not he liked to play in the playoffs. So thank God that we didn't have Twitter or anything back then because I would have been roasted, and I would have deserved it. I just had a bad entire interview with uh, Jesse Fleming. The whole thing was horrible. It was my, one of my first, like, real jobs at a newspaper. It was right before the Rio Olympics. I was excited. I was a new sports reporter getting to do a story about the two London Olympians. And I was just like, so, you know, I didn't even say tell me about it. I was just asking her about, you know, playing with Christine St. Clair and going to the Olympics. And I think I texted you after being like, that was a bust. Just everything. She's like, yeah, it's really great. Really Je excited for Rio. And that wasn't even your fault because Jesse Fleming is very smart. And the thing about athletes when they're very smart they're smart enough to know not to tell you anything. Um, because if you say something, um, that gets repeated. And if you say it in Toronto or you say it before a big stage, like, it gets repeated and it becomes part of the news cycle. Yep. Um, so I'm so sorry, guys. I'm supposed to throw to you. So I'm going to come out. Who wants to ask some questions before this panel's done? Because I talk too much. Sorry. Just curious to know where your head's at when it comes to front offices. And when they're hiring head coaches, where the where the lines draw between like the the players' coach and the hired ass coach? Because you see like the Glenn Galt's in like it, in Calgary all year, it was just like throwing sticks over the glass and practices and shit like that. Like, where do you think the front office assesses though that that line on who who to bring in to deal with their personnel? Well, I I genuinely think it depends. Like, I don't want to say age, but like what mentality that front office has, like. Almost whose side are you on, right? Like, I mean, are you, are you the kind of front office that believes, like, we're going to put, we're going to go all in on this coach and, you know, players will cycle in and cycle out? Or, like, we have two or three young players and we have to build around them. But I genuinely believe that as people are getting more and more in tune with the emotional side of not just hockey, every sport and they realize that as every sport, including hockey, gets younger and younger and younger, we have to be more in tune with the emotional aspect of the game and the way that, that young players think. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more and more coaches that work to be in tune with the way that young people think, even if there is a generational divide. Like, I, I really think that, you know, you have to be in tune. Again, as the game gets younger, as the game gets faster, and you rely more on young players. I mean, we're seeing it now. Myrtle, wherever he is, is written extensively. Like, this is the window for the Leafs to win because their best players are young and cheap. And I don't think that's going to be a rare thing. I think 
teams are going to rely more and more on, on, on young draft picks, young first-round draft picks. So it's like, how do we get the most out of this player right away? Well, that means getting in tune with the way this player is thinking, the way this young player is thinking right away. And to me, that, that requires a lot of emotional involvement from a coach that you might not have seen a long time ago. Uh, I think you, have a, you probably have a, a guide. Um, if you don't have a guide for, for how to be successful, you can always look at Montreal and the coach that they kept, who at one point um, banned the triple low five between P.K. Subban and Carey Price because it was distracting. Um, and we all know that now Montreal is the three-time defending uh, Stanley Cup champion because of that coach's approach um, and that their future is very, very bright. So I think there's, there's, your, there's your shining beacon. If you follow Sean on Twitter, like at least every other day you'll see a shot about that P.K. Subban trade. It's the dumbest <laughs> thing in the history of fucking... When, 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 if, behind the curtain, when, when, when I feel thankful that, that, that Fitzy has, like, treated my stories okay I send him a photo of PK Subban doing that one I do I'm not even kidding I really do because I I know it will make his heart explode full disclosure I have a, a now seven-year-old at home and on that seven-year-old's wall is a giant everybody know what fathead is it's the American company the giant stickers um for whatever reason I mean it was the year that Montreal didn't suck and went deep in the playoffs when was He's, that it was like five years ago now uh, he was two, and he kept noticing, you know, just the name, uh, Subban, Subban. And he saw it on TV, and so he became a P.K. Subban fan and has a giant fat head still above his, um, above his bed. Um, the day he was traded, um, he asked me, what does a trade mean, and can I still like P.K. Subban? So Mark Bergevin yes. and I have beef. <laughs> he, now wears a, uh, he now is a Nashville Predators fan. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. That is crushing. Yeah, hi. Uh, I have a two-part question regarding Mike Babcock. The first one, the other thing that I've noticed about him, yeah, idiosyncrasy, yeah, yeah. other than his accent, yeah. <coughs> is that uh, his, uh, he seems to be like, a, on, on non-game day, seems to be like the sweatiest bastard during the, during the, uh, the, the, the press, uh, the, the scrums. I, Do you think that is just another way of him trying to project his work ethic and, uh, like, what? He, he does work out, sorry, Josh, he, he works out uh, generally because he is a fitness guy. He, he does, my understanding, like he'll go on the bike and between the skate and by the time he sees us, he, he goes on the bike and goes pretty hard to get a bit of a sweat on. So it is, it's legitimate. It's not like, remember the Ottawa Senators back again when they were good regularly, when the Leafs were beating them, that they had the, uh, the, the interviews where they're always on the exercise bike and they had them in there. Um, I think Babcock usually, usually gives it before he sees us, get his heart rate up so he can face Myrtle. I, <laughs> I only felt uh, initiated in terms of, like, covering the Leafs when I came around a corner and was almost bowled over by Babcock on his run after the morning skate. Like, that, to me, that was like, and, and I kind of said that. I forget who I said it to. Maybe it was CJ who's out there. I'm like, oh, Babcock almost just, he's like, yeah, that, that's what happens. Like, everybody's almost been run over by Babcock. When, but he, he makes it known. Like, when he goes on his You get his a T-shirt jog, every time it happens. Yeah, I got run over by Mike Babcock. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, mine's in the mail, I'm sure. But uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's a really good question. I, I, he, all I can say is he goes on that run, or he starts the run, and he tries to run over the guy with the beard. That's all I know for a fact. I don't know where what happens when he goes past the uh, the the lounge, but. Uh, 
I mean, I, yeah. And, and sorry, part two quickly. Do you think this, uh, this uh, trip that he had down to Arizona to meet with Austin, could that potentially have been him running past Austin, the, uh, the, the possibility of if JT comes, we give, Who? JT, we give him the C, and you're you, you going to be all right with that? Wow. I thought we were going <laughs> to go ahead. I thought we were going to be the one panel that avoided the, uh, the JT talk. Um, I, I, I'm inclined to say no. If only because, like, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to go down there in Arizona in the summertime and be like, like, I think if, if what was being reported was true, you, I think you're just trying to, like, take care of that and put out that fire. I don't, I don't know if, from everything I've learned about the way they're treating Matthews, they want to bring him along slowly and not overwhelm him with the responsibility, the, the you know, Grand Canyon-sized weight of being the Toronto Maple Leaf that's going to win you a Stanley Cup. So don't go down there and be like, so, you know, do we have any beef? No, we're good. Okay, how about this JT guy? Like, he's going to, you know, like, he's going to be the guy. Like, now that we're cool, you're number two. Like, I, I, don't, really, I don't really think that's, that's their approach, and, and uh, I, I have no intel on that. I'm just thinking. The Grand Canyon several hours north of Scottsdale, but that was a really good... That that's was, why I that went good. there. No, it's, that's why I it's, went it's there. It's a drive. Like, you do have to drive a bit, but it, that was a good one. I like that. I appreciate that. 